Bible reading today is Luke 1, 5 to 25, and the second reading is from Malachi 3, 16 to 4, verse 6. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay, Malachi 3, 16 to 4, 6. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, said the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. 
but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my Moses, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the, that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Good morning. My name is Stephen, and it's, a, it's an honor for me to be preaching from the Word of God. Uh, as of last week, we started a new sermon series. Uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and the sermon series has been titled, The Way of Salvation. Now, this morning's text, we are looking at the angel's proclamation to the priest Zechariah that he will have a son and that their child will be full of the Holy Spirit, great in the eyes of the Lord, turning people back to God. As the story unfolds, we know that this is John the Baptist. He was the man who lived in seclusion in the desert. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey, the, and the breakfast of champions. And he preached boldly that unless you repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, the wrath of God is upon you. I think if John were to be born into our own time, I don't think he'd find his way to many church pulpits. I don't think we'd really appreciate his clothing or we'd find his stench offensive or something like this. But even more offensive is we'd probably find his preaching. He'd be labeled as someone who probably inspires hate speech. Even in his own time, John had his critics. He offended many and eventually he would pay the price of having his head chopped off because he spoke out against illegitimate marriage. Yet in all of this, the angel says of John, in the eyes of God, he will be great. In Jesus' own words concerning John, he says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. So what is so great about John? And also, why does Luke, our author, bother to document him at all when he gives an account for Theophilus? If you missed last week, I'll give a small recap. But Pastor Jonathan was telling us that Luke is writing an account of events, historical events that took place that were fulfilling prophetic revelation. That's what he's doing for Theophilus. He is writing down the history and the events that took place to show them how this fulfills prophetic revelation. And the reason that Luke documents this event, the proclamation of John, is because it is the prophetic fulfillment of what God would come, uh, God said would come. So when Luke says, I have, in verse 3, I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, the very first thing is God speaks from the temple. This is the very first thing that Luke says God does. You see, if you open up your Bible, a little bit of youth group for you here. Now, if you don't have a Bible, please get a Bible. I'm, not, I'm against the phone. 
This is wholly dedicated to one thing. Your phone has Facebook and Instagram and everything else on it, and we know how we love to flick between our apps. This has one purpose. If you open up your Bible to the end of Malachi, where we just read, and you've got your one little page, the New Testament, right here, and then you find yourself in the Gospel of Matthew. This page is quite like the little marker on a tombstone that divides two time periods. That little part on the tombstone, we're like, that's the person's life that is between those two time periods. This stands for 400 years. There's a 400-year gap between Malachi, the prophet who spoke, and then the time of John. That's what this stands for if you ever want to look in your Bible. Why is that important? Because the verses that we look at this morning, there is a 400-year silence. Now, God has finally spoken to his people. And I've titled this morning's ser sermon, The Saving Power of God's Word. And the reason for this is because God word, God's Word sorry, has always been the means by which he accomplishes all of his purposes and in which we can understand them. Whether it is the act of creation, the expanse of the universe, God spoke and the world had its being. Whether it's the salvation of the Jews from the slavery in Egypt, God spoke on Mount Horeb through the fire to Moses. This will be the place where you come back and worship. It is by God's word that they receive their salvation. Or whether it is Jesus himself, God's word made flesh. Jesus speaks, demons will flee. Jesus speaks, and he calms the winds and the waves. Jesus speaks, and Lazarus rises. It is the power of the Word of God to bring salvation to mankind. And on the basis of this understanding, I'm going to present my outline. And in point form, it is this. Number one, it is in the presence of God where the Word of God can be found or will be found. Number two, God's Word is the power of God to bring people to Himself to be saved. God's Word will prevail, number three, against unbelief to bring about its purposes. They're my three points. And I put them into question format, just because that's helpful. Number one, ask yourself, can the Word of God be known apart from the presence of God? Can the Word of God be known apart from the presence of God? Number two, can people be saved from judgment apart from the Word of God? And number three, does humanity's disbelief in God's Word render it inefficient to bring about its purposes of salvation? We'll circle back to these questions and points as they arise in the text. To give you a little interpretation tool, if you read your Bible and you're like, I have no idea what this means, as you're reading through, everything that we read needs to be realized through who wrote it, what was their intent for writing, and who was the people that were listening, who was it made for? If you want a little interpretation tool. And so what we know of Luke, as, as Pastor Jonathan pointed out, Luke is our author, and he wants to give Theophilus, the person he writes to, credible evidence from history to show him that he can be certain of the teachings that he has received concerning Jesus Christ. He wants to make him certain in the faith that he has. So how can Theophilus know that John is a legitimate prophet from God? How can Theophilus know that the teachings he has received of Jesus will lead him to the one and true God? And why should Theophilus believe in the Word of God if so many seem to be disbelieving or discrediting? And we'll answer these as we go. Let's pray to the Lord for some wisdom.
Heavenly Father, it is only by you that we can really receive any understanding of you. And so I just pray that your word would be made clear. Father, that it would resonate in our hearts and our minds. Lord, that it would lead us into a truer worship and that it would inspire faith in your Son. In your name I pray. Amen. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, both of them righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. I want to take you back, go back to our little page divider into Malachi. It says 400 years before the angel spoke at the temple. And the reason I want to do this is because in verse 17 of where we are this morning, that is a quote quoting Malachi. So I want to use Malachi as a reference point here. When the angel spoke the word to Zechariah, he sees it as fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, which means God sees it as fulfillment of what he said he would do. And this is why Luke writes it down. And so one task that Luke has as a historian to write revelation to Theophilus is to show how the conception of John fulfills the prophets of old. If you're someone that's like into Star Wars or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something like this, and you're a big fan, you know that there's fan fiction. You can go and read about all these little offshoot stories that people have made up around kind of the main story. And that's the difference between canon what the author wrote and and the actual story, and fiction, just a made-up mumbo-jumbo. And Luke is saying, I am here to write you canon. What is? I am not a fanboy. I am someone writing to you what actually took place. I'm showing you from a canonical perspective of Malachi. Now, in the days of Malachi, when he prophesied, the people of God, they've just come back from exile, that is, they've come back from Babylon, And they were expecting that when they got back, that the Lord was going to restore Israel to its former glory. And it was quite disappointing for them because the prophets rose up and said, look guys, that time is still far off. That time is still in the future to come. And so they tell the people of Israel, in the meantime, what I want you to do, I want you to live and worship God in faithfulness according to the covenant that he has established with Moses. That's what I want you to do. And a lot of people during Malachi's time, they didn't like that idea. In fact, they believed that living for God and serving him really proved to be no benefit at all to them. This is what they say. It's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. These people, they've come home, they've built their houses, they've rebuilt the temple, they've started performing the the sacrifices and they've got the religious duties back on point, they're performing their duties to God and they say, come on God, we've done our part, now it's your turn, bless us and give us all that stuff that we knew of that our ancestors had. We're holding up our end of the agreement. This is like old school prosperity gospel. If you live for God, then he'll make the material blessings rain down on you. You know, you do your thing and you'll get the nice home, the hot wife and the money. God, we're doing our part, do your part. 
And it shows the corruption of the people because when God does not give people these things, then what it kind of brings up in our head, well, if, if the point of living for you is that you would make me comfortable and you're not, and I see that wicked people live comfortable and luxurious lives, then that's the better life. It exposes the heart. If you're wondering what Christianity is, it's the way of salvation so that men and women can come into relationship with God. If what you seek and what you yearn for is to be with the Lord and have a relationship with Him, then in Christ you've come to the right place. You may not get rich. You may not have a hot wife. Oh, I hope you have a hot wife. I don't know. That seems awkward. And then you may not have all these other luxuries. <laughs> Sorry, that was wrong of me. <sighs> anyway, we'll get back on point here. <clears throat> but the conclusion we get to is, if that's what we want, it's better to be wicked and comfy than it is to be righteous in the sight of God and live in a meek condition. But at the same time, there were a few people. There were a few people that the Lord says this of in Israel. It says, the Lord noticed and listened to them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord, my own possession on the day I am preparing, and I will have compassion on them. And you will see again the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. God makes distinctions between those who follow Him and His commands and those who do not. Were all the people Israelites? Yes. Were all the people God's people by name? Yes. Yet the Lord remembers those who revere His name and walk according to His commands. Jesus Himself, being God, says, you are my friends if you do what I command, or you are my family if you not only hear God's Word, but you put it into practice. You see, we are not God's people because we say we are God's people. We are not simply God's people because we profess Lord, Lord, as Jesus would say. You are God's people if you revere Him as Lord over your life and live according to Him. This is coming under His Lordship. Now, there are two things here I want to draw out specifically. The first one, after 400 years of silence or during 400 years of silence, what does one do to walk righteously in that time period? And the answer is we walk according to the revelation that God has given us. That's the extent to which we can go, only to that which God has revealed. And so the last echoing words of the prophet is this, remember the instructions of my servant Moses, the statutes and the ordinance I commanded him at Mount Horeb for all of Israel. That's what they're given for 400 years of silence. That is how Israel is to walk righteous before the Lord. So it is by no accident that when Luke introduces Zechariah and Elizabeth, the first thing we know about them, in the sight of God, both of them are righteous people. How were they righteous? Scripture tells us because they lived without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. 400 years have passed, and the ones that are righteous in the sight of God are those who have held on to the revelation of long ago, and it is the same for today. To walk righteously before the Lord is to hold on to the gospel message that we have received in Christ 2,000 years ago. 
There is no extra special revelation or supplementary word to come. We do not need the Book of Mormon. You do not need Muhammad. You do not need the prophets telling you that Trump's going to get elected for 2021. What we need is faithful men and women who cling to the gospel that we already have and if so, lead people back to the covenant that already has been established in Christ. That's what the prophetic role was. Bringing God's word into the circumstance to lead people back to the covenant that he established with his people. The message is 2,000 years old, but it is the one he has given us until the day of judgment. The second thing to draw your attention to that comes as no coincidence is the name Zechariah. Malachi tells us that the Lord remembers those who walk righteously before him. Zechariah's name means God remembers or the Lord remembers. And I don't want to stretch it too far because Zechariah is a common name and historically it's the name of the priest. But we would be failing to see that Luke uses names also to make points like John and Jesus to show what they will do and the roles that they will have. So when we come to a story whereby the Lord remembers his people and he comes to two people who walk righteously in his sight, 400 years have passed, but Luke sees the continuation of one story of God coming to mankind to save them. And there is a problem that develops with these two righteous people who walk blamelessly. They're unable to conceive and have children. Now in a time and a context where good social standing and worth of women was found in their childbearing hips, Elizabeth would be seen as someone who is, because of her infertility, not blessed by the Lord. That is why Elizabeth will say later on that the Lord has taken my disgrace away from among the people because she is seen as someone who is lesser or hashtag not blessed. This is the problem with Christianity sometimes when it tries to establish where someone is in the sight of the Lord based off a circumstance. People could look at Zachariah and Elizabeth and wonder, is there hidden sins in there? Is that what's preventing this? Maybe is there generational sins and curses that have come down the line and that's why God is making this not happen? There must be something there, but God explicitly calls them righteous, favored, blessed. And the purpose and the reason for why they have not had children all of this time is simply because God has purposed John the Baptist to come through them. But even more than this, John the Baptist, as we will get to, he has no equal in the eyes of God until his greatness is surpassed by Jesus. He is second only to God himself, which is a fairly big claim. Thankfully for Zachariah and Elizabeth, as the history of God's people prove, God really loves to use old people to bring about life so that he can show that he is the author and that he is the blesser. You can take that as an encouragement if you identify as the elderly. You may not physically have another child. I don't know if you'd want to. But the Lord still uses you and sees you as servants of His. And you can still bring about new life in the sense that you can speak to people and people may be reborn through your ministry. You see, in faith there is no one too immature or too old to still do the work of the Lord. That's beautiful. So here's this old guy, Zachariah, on division, was on duty, and he was serving the priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. If you were a priest living under the old covenant regulations, you had 24 divisions. Your division got two weeks out of the year to perform the religious ceremony in the temple. But today is a double honor for Zechariah, because he will burn incense before the Holy of Holies, the presence of God in the temple. And he will only get to do that once in his lifetime. This is it. This is the big show. And so we have Zechariah at an altar to burn the incense, and before him is the presence of God, or the Holy of Holies, the big curtain, and inside where there used to be the Ark of the Covenant is where God's throne room is. And all of a sudden, an angel appears before him to the right of him. There is a presence and a company in which Zechariah finds himself in, and it startles and shocks him, which is a pretty common reaction. When Luke writes, he does not say Zechariah was serving as priest near the Holy of Holies location. He says, when Zechariah was serving as priest, he was before God. Where was Zechariah? He was in the presence of the Lord. And if there is a place where you expect the activity and the voice of God to be dwelling, it's in the presence of the Almighty. You see, somewhere Zechariah isn't fully comprehending his ministry either and whom he is ministering before. So by all means, as a priest, he would have the theological intellect and knowledge that that is what is going on. But somewhere in his faith, there is a disconnect. And this is actually a struggle for all of us. Theologically, I think we actually can all grasp quite a fair bit. But to trust and believe in that which is written seems to sometimes have quite a gap in it. And so when the angel proclaims the good news of John, it's met with disbelief, and the angel is shocked at the fact that a priest, a person whose life profession is to serve in the presence of God, would fail to believe the word when it comes. The angel rebukes Zechariah and says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. This is Gabriel, the same angel that visited Daniel in Babylon. He's a known presence. But more than this, he is standing before the Holy of Holies. He's standing in the presence with him. He's like, I'm in here with you. Why? Because I serve God too. Expect me to be here. And though Zechariah can't see it until now, there is a spiritual reality in which the angels are ministering before God at the Holies of Holies, and Zechariah is there as well. And so it shouldn't be of surprise to him to have an envoy come to him. There's three things to draw out here. First, Theophilus can know that John is a legitimate prophet of God because the Word of God was spoken through his mouthpiece in his presence, where you'd expect to find God, sitting on his throne room in the temple. That is the meeting place where we hear from the Lord. These things are linked to serve Theophilus that there is a continuation of revelation. And two, this is the point. It is in the presence of God where the Word of God will be found. You and I live in a time unlike Zechariah. We live under the new covenant that was established in the blood of Christ. And those who believe by faith in Christ have received the presence, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it indwells you. The presence of God isn't before you in a holy of holies, it's within. So what you should expect to find with the Lord's people 
is the word of God on their lips, and it will be treasured in their heart. This is why Scripture is the foundation of Christianity. If you're someone in a season of life where you're currently looking around at churches and trying to find your place, or if you're just someone that's like, well, which denomination? Don't go off denomination. Go off this. Does the community in where you reside say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One? And do they profess that He is the Son of God? That's one John. He says, I know that you hold to the truth, and I know that you have the anointing of God. How? Because you hold that profession. And the Gospel of John will even go further and say that there is a ministry that the Holy Spirit is giving to the people. And Jesus talks about it. He says, when He comes, that is the Holy Spirit, He'll prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the Prince of the world now stands condemned. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, what you expect to find in the presence of the Holy Spirit, is a conviction of sin, is a knowing need for the righteousness of Jesus, and the truth of the judgment of Satan and his kingdom. That's what you'll find there because that is what the Spirit will testify to. The last application point to draw out on this before I move on, it's a little bit deviating, but it's good. Again, if you have the presence of God in you, you are a priest. That is why Peter will say, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You are priests fit for service, in the presence of God based on Christ. The glory that is ours in Jesus is that we can minister before a holy God, the one and only. And the weight of this most marvelous news is that our whole lives are to be lived in service before a holy God. You say the way that we, we speak, or speak to others, or speak about people, you are ministering in the very presence of God the way you act, whether that is public or private. You're ministering in the very presence of God, the way you think and the things that you desire in your heart, all of the culmination of everything you are. There is nothing physical about you that is detached from the spiritual reality of who God is. And so all that you do is done in the presence of God. Can the Word of God be known apart from the presence of God? No. The holy book was written by the Holy Spirit, and he who is in you will testify to the Scriptures. We meet God through His revelation. He has spoken to us through His Son, and that has been given to us, and we find it through the apostolic witness. And as Christians, if you're thirsty to know the Lord, that He would reveal Himself more and more to you, as we just sung this morning, this is where you can meet with Him in His Word. I've sat in meetings where, you know, we worship, and it's nice, and we pray, and someone gets on the microphone, and it's, Lord, we just want to know you more. Lord, we, we just want to hear from you, da, 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 and it carries on for a very long time. And we never open the Bible, and I always get so confused. He's already spoken. This is where we go to hear from him. This is the very Word of God. If you could imagine 
what it must have been like on that mountain. The cloud, the lightning, the thunderous voice, the spine-tingling sensation that must have been had. It was so bad that they were like, please stop and just speak to Moses because we can't stand to hear it. It's terrifying. His words are here. That same thunderous voice that is God's is here. If you want to meet with the Lord, you want to know his mind, his righteous paths, the way to walk, what Christ has done, the forgiveness of sins, the judgment that is to come, it's here. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you will call him John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. There's most likely two really big prayers in Zachariah's life. One, that he and his wife might fall pregnant and have a child. And two, because they are both from priestly lines, that the Messiah would come and liberate them from the Roman oppression so that they can worship their Lord. And the scripture teaches us in James, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. In one single answer to prayer, God shows himself in two ways, and it's beautiful. He shows himself to be this sovereign, cosmic ruler who's going to bring salvation for all of humanity, yet simultaneously at the same time, this personal God who hears the prayers of a woman and a man who grieve over the infertility they've experienced their whole lives. And in one answer to prayer, that both are answered. <laughs> both are done. This is the God that you come to in Christ. Jesus, infinite in power, all things made by him and all things made for him. And through him, all of the world able to receive salvation. And also, he is personally moved in acts of compassion because he sees the weeping of an old man and an old lady at night on their beds yearning for a child. God's salvation, cosmic in scope, yet personal in its approach. Elizabeth is going to have a son and there's going to be so much joy. It's generally what happens in families. You bring home the baby and everyone's goo-goo-ga-ga, right? It's lovely. You flick over to verse 58 of where we are, and you'll see Elizabeth has had John, and the relatives and the friends, they're all rejoicing over his birth. But this isn't the only thing that Scripture has in mind, because the people will rejoice not only over his birth, but also for the fact that he will be great in the sight of God. So what makes John so great? Firstly, he is the only human who can boast that whilst in the womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even while John is in the womb, which is really cool, he testifies to the Lord Jesus. There's pregnant Elizabeth, pregnant Mary, the relative comes over, and John leaps for joy in the womb because he knows that his Christ is near to him. The mention of alcohol is a shot back to the Nazarite vow. This is a vow where you could dedicate yourself wholly to the Lord. And in there, there'd be stipulations. You can't drink alcohol. The other one is, was you can't cut your hair. The most kind of popular guy that we normally put up is Samson. Samson couldn't cut his hair. Why? Because he had a Nazarite vow. 
Now, whether or not John took such a vow, we don't know. What it does tell us, though, is that John's whole life was dedicated only to God. And so his whole life would be under the influence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He was set away for one purpose, to prepare people for the Lord. There is no one that can make such a great claim. He is by far the greatest prophet until the time, again, of Christ. Secondly, as we saw earlier, the Word of God is intrinsically linked with the presence of God and the testimony of Christ. So John is great in the sight of God. Yes, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So what should come from his mouth? But the Word of God. Again, if we flick forward to when he actually has a public ministry after he comes out of the desert, it says, God's Word came to John in the wilderness, and he went into all the vicinity of Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John was great in God's sight because of the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, proclaiming his word, and through his ministry, the way of salvation was being known through repentance and baptism. And Israel rejoices because it knows the way back to its Lord and its God. That's what's great about him. As I explained earlier in verse 17, we have a direct quotation from Malachi over in Luke's passage, where it says, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's John. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So if you've ever been like, I wonder where some prophetic fulfillment is in the Bible. Here's one. This is Luke documenting his prophetic fulfillment. John is Elijah to come. We need to take note here too is that Malachi and Gabriel's words, they differ a little bit, but they have a unity in the idea of turning people back to God and the outworking that that will have. In John's ministry of turning people back to God by way of repentance, it's going to bring spiritual, personal, and social change. Now, see, I think we, a lot of us get this idea that repentance is, is merely the confessing of sins and the feelings of remorse for them, and then that's kind of where it ends. But repentance, when it bears its fruit, it has confession and remorse of sins in it. But when it bears its fruit, it goes away and it sins no more. It walks the other way. John will say, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. For instance, a father turned to their children. A repentant father in the eyes of the Lord will love and support his children because it is sin not to do so in the eyes of God. Or flip it the other way around if you're in my anchored youth. <laughs> a repentant child who recognizes their sin in the eyes of God will honor thy mother and thy father, because in the eyes of God, that is a sin. And then the very broad statement by Gabriel, and he will turn the disobedient to the ways of righteous. If you remember our time in Matthew, when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows, I've come to fulfill all righteousness, and then he teaches his disciples, his students, how to walk in righteousness. And he expects them to know the difference between righteous, right-walking in the eyes of God, and unrighteous, not right-walking, wicked-walking in the eyes of God. He expects them to know that. But the wisdom is not only being able to discern those two paths, but walk in it. That's why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Not only being able to distinguish the paths, but walk in them. And so John the Baptist actually gives quite clear instructions and it's very practical instructions on what it looks like to walk in repentance and righteousness before God. People are like, hey, yeah, John, how do we, how do, we do this then? We did the baptism part. 
How do we keep in step with this? If you've got two shirts and you see someone in need, give him your shirt. That's why you can practically live out a righteous walk in the eyes of God. If you're extorting people their money and cheating people their money, stop it. That's how you can walk in righteous paths. If you're using your power of position to lord it over people, stop it. Those are just very practical approaches to repentance. So whilst it is confession, it is remorse of sinning in the eyes of the Lord, it's also changing and turning away from the sins that we find ourselves in. This is the beauty of which angel, the angel Gabriel will speak of, that boy that's in the womb. The Word of God that is at work in him will bring about repentance of sin that would be baptized into it, another practical outworking of the repentance, so that they are prepared for the great day that Christ has come. God's Word, ministered by the Holy Spirit through John, which has the power to save people. Can people be saved without the Word of God? No. It is the Word of God. It is Christ, the one that, that is how we receive the revelation, sorry, that we can receive the forgiveness of sins by repenting and putting faith in Christ. That is why Paul will say, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who bring the good news? <clears throat> but not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. How can someone receive the forgiveness of Christ if they have never heard the good news that Jesus died for sins in order that they would no longer be under the wrath of God? And I know that it is so tempting to want to believe in our mindset that somehow the loved ones that we have that have never heard of Christ, that maybe and just hopefully somehow they might just slip in through the gaps. That's not it. The truth is, is that God is so loving that He would send Christ so that there may be a way of salvation for them. What He needs is servants of the words who would go and reap the harvest. People bold enough to take it to friends, families, neighbors, workplaces, and eventually, as Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. And personally, I think <clears throat> if there is a place in a church that needs repentance, it's probably over cowardice, laziness, passivity, to want to share the gospel with others. I'm not pointing that at you. I put myself in that boat. And I'm being serious, not just a confession of sin to God that, hey, Lord, we haven't spoken about you and we know it, but a repentant that we would actually choose to turn away from it and fulfill the command that God has told us to go and do. How will we live after this sermon? How will we live tomorrow? Will it be different? If that is on your heart as it is on mine, I would love to encourage each other and pray for ways in which we do that. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I've been speaking to you and to tell you the good news and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day that this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. 
As noted earlier, Zachariah's response to the angel's proclamation appears to be asking for a sign from the position of a disbelieving heart. Now, it's not uncommon to ask God for a sign to confirm His Word, but to ask God for a sign because of lack of belief is to test the Lord. After Jesus had finished feeding the the 4,000 with the seven loaves of bread and the couple of fish that He had, the Pharisees walk over to him and be like, show us a sign from heaven so that we might believe. Because feeding 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread isn't miraculous enough. Jesus rebuked them and he said, you're in a wicked and adulterous generation. And said, no sign will be given to you except that of Jonah. Which is a reference to himself being dead, buried and resurrected on the third. And so he rebukes them, yet at the same time he does kind of give them a sign. It's just not packaged the way that they'd like to see it. The resurrection stands as a sign against the Pharisees' disbelief. And the same thing happens here with Zechariah. Gabriel rebukes him because as priest who ministers before God, he should know that this is the word of the Lord. Yet he does give him a sign, it's just not the one he wants. He shuts his gob and says, well, here's your sign, and you can talk again when you name your son John. Probably not the sign you want, especially as a priest because under the Levitical law, he can no longer serve before the Lord because he is, I guess, deformed or he can't do the practice. And so he's called off duty until the time it's all over. What should have been a great time of rejoicing for the people as they sat outside praying, waiting for the priest to come out, the guy that stands between God and the people, it just kind of turns out to be this irony 400 years and God finally speaks and the angel is like, I bring you good news. And the priest who's meant to deliver the message can't talk. All the people know that there is a sign, but they're not sure what it means. Again, as I said before, what is most beautiful about the gospel is the small glances that it gives in other stories. It doesn't seem to fixate on them, yet at the same time, the whole point seems to be in them as well. And again, it's the beauty of the gospel being cosmic in scope, personal in its relationship. Despite the disbelief of Zechariah and the confusion back at the temple, the Lord has decided in His great sovereignty that this elderly lady who has been belittled her whole life should be held now in the highest honor. She hides herself away for five months from the disgrace until she's got her nice little baby belly to kind of show off to everyone. The Lord has done this for me, she says. It's a personal gospel. It's personal good news. And yet we all say, or can say, He has done this for us. It's cosmic in scope. It's good news that because John came, we can all know the way of the Lord. So I'll finish my sermon with this last point and question and call the band up. God's Word will always prevail against unbelief to bring about its purposes. Whether Zechariah believed the words of the angel, the reality was John was always going to be born through Elizabeth, despite what Zechariah might have thought. And likewise, whether people want to believe the gospel or not, there will be those who are born again by God's Word, and it has no dependency on what people think of it. And this is good news for Theophilus, a Gentile man, whereby many Jews would say he wouldn't be able to receive it, and where many contemporaries would call him a fool for believing in it. 
But the word of God will fulfill its purposes of saving those who by faith believe in the gospel of Christ. You know, Jesus says that John is great, but he also says that the least in the kingdom is greater than he is. John may have been filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, but Jesus says that those who believe in his word are born again by the Holy Spirit. And if that is our reality, then where we see the presence of God, there should also be the word of God in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for your word. That is something that always seems to comfort and cut. And Father, I pray that it would also be an encouragement. Lord, change our hearts and our minds to see this life the way that you see it. Help us to prioritize the things that you ask us to prioritize and put to death the things that we think of in this world. Father, by your Spirit, embolden us to live for you, that we would speak and that all might know in your name. Amen.